You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist at the University of Maryland and also a uh, LLS volunteer. I want to thank you all very much for joining us on this episode that's going to focus on childhood leukemia. Today, we're very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Lewis Silverman, who is the Director of Clinical Research and Clinical Care in the Department of Pediatric Oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Associate Chief of Pediatric Oncology at Boston Children's Hospital. He is a professor of pediatrics as well at the Harvard Medical School. Lewis, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's apparent and very exciting how much progress has been made in pediatric leukemia during the past 50 years. What's happened in the last five years? What are the things that you think are most notable in this field? Is the rate of progress accelerating, decelerating, staying the same? This is an incredibly exciting time, I think, in the field of childhood leukemia. We in pediatric oncology always look back at at childhood ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is the most common type of leukemia we see in kids, as one of the great success stories of, of all of cancer medicine that really 50 years ago, this was an incurable disease. And over uh, the last several decades with um, successive clinical trials, we really improved cure rates so that 85% of children diagnosed with ALL who walk through the doors are long-term event-free survivors, meaning that they never relapse and are cured of their disease. And and that's just great. And that, that, that progress was really made primarily by the development of complicated multi-agent chemotherapy regimens using cytotoxic agents we've had around for several years. So, you know, it's a, it's a really phenomenal success. But really, over the last five to ten years, I, I feel like there have been developments in the field that are just complete game changers. And the rate of progress has just accelerated in ways that, that those of us who have been doing this for a while couldn't have imagined. And really, those developments, I think, really focus in on our ability to understand the biology of this disease, the genomic, the technology we have now to really uh, delve into the genomics of the leukemia and identify targets is really in the last few years has just exploded. And then uh, there's just a whole new avenue of therapeutics that have now become available to us, immunotherapies, so antibodies and CAR T-cells, the chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. Really, these have become available to us over the last few years and have just, I think, have the potential to really transform our field. Have to say, it is exciting, and hearing you talk about it is really exciting also, because you can hear it in your voice. Along those lines, I, I mean, I think it's fascinating that the things that have been discovered were things that no one would have thought about even five years ago. What are some examples of that, uh, you know, sort of major breakthroughs in, in our molecular understanding of uh, childhood ALL that, again, we may not have thought about a number of years ago? Yeah, you know, I think we, for many years, uh, began identifying different subsets of uh, ALL. So while the disease all looks the same under the microscope, uh, looking at the chromosomes by cytogenetics, 
or by FISH studies, we were able to begin to identify that there were subgroups of patients with different abnormalities and that these subgroups responded differently to treatment. So that really helped us identify prognostically distinctive biologic subsets. Over the last several years, with with advances in our ability to look at the genomics of cells, we've now been able to identify uh, many more subsets of patients that we never knew existed before. So, for instance, I think one of the greatest advances over the last several years is identification of a a group of patients that we call Philadelphia chromosome-like or pH-like. And that represents about 15% of patients, pediatric patients, with the B-cell type of ALL, which is the more common type of ALL. Well, so it sounds like, again, these are, so they're not Philadelphia chromosome positive. And what's the difference? Yeah, so the difference is, you know, we've known about the Philadelphia chromosome for many, many years. That's something we can see when we look at the chromosomes of the cell, that you can see, you know, that part of chromosome 9 and part of chromosome 22 get all mixed up, and you make a a, a fusion protein uh, involving the BCR gene and the ABLE gene, the BCR ABLE positive ALL. So we've known about that for many years, and we've known that that group of patients didn't do as well as other patients and needed different treatment. And that group of patients over the last many years, a new type of therapy became available for them, which targeted that BCR-ABLE fusion called tyrosine kinase inhibitors, so drugs like imatinib or gisatinib. And adding those drugs to chemotherapy helped to improve the outcome of patients with Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL, those who have the the chromosomal abnormality. And that's about 5% of patients. What the genomics helped us discover was that there's about 15% of patients whose uh, gene expression looks just like they have the Philadelphia chromosome. It looks virtually identical to those patients, except they don't have the abnormality in chromosome 9 and chromosome 22. So you don't pick them up by cytogenetics. But because they look so similar, they were labeled pH-like, Philadelphia chromosome-like. And what many groups were able to show is that this subset of patients, like Philadelphia chromosome positive patients, have a much higher chance of relapse, don't do as well with standard types of therapy compared to other children, and and probably would benefit from different or intensified therapies. And what's even more exciting, what we learned even more by these genomic studies, is that the majority of these patients actually harbor other abnormalities, fusions, that would render them sensitive to the same types of drugs that we can use in the Philadelphia chromosome type. So there's a group of these pH-like patients who have fusions, abnormalities in, in their genes that appear to be sensitive to imatinib and disatinib. And there's also a larger subset of these patients who have different types of abnormalities that look like they'd be sensitive to drugs that target a pathway called uh, the JAK-STAT signaling pathway, for which there is an available agent. Right now, the available approved agent is ruxolitinib. And so one can test, one can add these targeted treatments, imatinib or ruxolitinib, to key chemotherapy in this group of patients and see if we might be able to improve outcomes. So here is a group of patients, 15% of ALL, in whom five years ago, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have even known that who they were and that they weren't doing well. Now, not only can I recognize them, but I have the ability to try new treatments in them to improve their outcome based on their biology. And, and that's really just a rapid uh, sense of progress and translation of our findings right back to the patient. 
Let me ask you a little bit more about the TKIs in that setting. You know, for adults with CML, for example, the drop in the white count, the improvement in the blood counts, the obtaining of remission is, can be very, very rapid when they're treated with TKIs. With children uh, with PH1 like ALL, are the responses as rapid? Are they as deep? Are they uh, good enough that, for example, a child may not need a transplant? Well, so, you know, going back to Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL, um, where we really have much more experience with TKIs, what we do know is ALL is different than CML, that a single-agent TKI is insufficient to really give you prolonged disease control and that you really have to combine your TKI with other treatments in order to achieve cure in those patients. It used to be for Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL before TKIs were available. We treated them with intensive chemotherapy and the standard of care was to take them to to a bone marrow transplant in first remission. And even with that treatment, which is really the most intensive treatment we had available at that time, uh, the overall cure rates were about 50%. So really suboptimal. What we've learned now over the last decade of using TKIs in Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL is that we are able to put off transplant for the vast majority of patients. So we are treating patients with intensive chemotherapy plus either imatinib or desatinib, but not taking them to transplant unless it looks like they aren't having a very good initial response as measured by minimal residual disease. So really, 80 to 85% of the kids we now treat, we're treating in first remission without a transplant. So we are able to avoid all of the toxicities, both short-term and long-term, of transplant in the vast majority of patients with Philadelphia chromosome-positive ALL. And for those who, who we treat without a transplant in first remission, if they do experience a relapse, we are able, it looks like, to salvage them with bone marrow transplant at that point. So that's been our experience with TKIs in in pH-positive disease. I think we're just embarking now on understanding how those drugs will work in pH-like disease. All we really know about pH-like ALL at this point is that those patients don't do as well when treated with standard treatment because we haven't really ever tried to change treatment for them. We've just found them. And I think that the investigations going on now are is it like Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL? Can we add a TKI to them, either imatinib, dasatinib, ruxolitinib, whatever is appropriate based on their fusion or other abnormality? Can we do that and will that improve their cure rates? Will that reduce their chance of relapse compared to what we've seen in the past when we've just used standard chemotherapy? So you had a wonderful article in Hematology 2017, Incorporation of Non-Chemotherapeutic Agents in Pediatric Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia. And it's a great review of the kinase inhibitors, the TKIs. But you also, there's a lot of good information on immunotherapy. And so I wanted to ask you also, where, what is the role in, in which children? Is there a role for immunotherapy? Is it for standard risk? Is it for high risk? Is it for salvage? I'd love to learn more about that. Sure. The development of effective immunotherapeutic treatment approaches is really just one of the most exciting advances in the field, and I really do think this can be transformative as to how we approach patients. We are still in the early stages of understanding how to use these exciting therapies, especially in children with ALL. You know, there are a number of different immunotherapies that are available to us. There are toxin-conjugated antibodies like inotuzumab. 
There's the bispecific antibody blinitumumab, which binds both T cells and CD19, so the BALL cell, and, and brings the T cell next to the B cell. And of course, there's uh, CAR T cells, which are really exciting. I think what we know about all of these treatment approaches is that they are all quite active in this disease. Some of them have been quite impressive in terms of response rates in patients with multiply relapsed refractory disease. So we know that these are able to get patients into remission uh, who have failed to go into remission with every other available treatment that we have. Um, so that's really exciting. I think what we need to figure out in the next several years, and it's under active investigation now, is how to incorporate these treatments into our current therapy and where is the most appropriate place to take them. I think we have have most experience in the multiply relapse and refractory setting, and whether we can move them up front is really uh, an area of active investigation. Whether we see these therapies as a bridge to other therapies or something we incorporate in multi-agent chemo to help improve response, or whether they at some point can replace some of the more toxic components of therapy uh, are really uh, the, the, the exciting questions we're asking now, and I look forward to finding out the answers in the next several years. I wanted to ask you about late relapses. You know, children that do well for several years, let's say two, three years, and then have a late relapse. What is that? Why? Uh, I'm sure, obviously, parents ask that, um, other scientists ask that, but, but why does that occur? And what are your thoughts? And what are some strategies? And, and in particular, I wanted to ask you about, you know, what is that telling us about immune surveillance in, in cancer survivors? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the, the question why, why a late relapse happens, I wish I had an answer for you. And certainly uh, parents ask that all the time. So it is true that the majority of relapses that we see in childhood ALL actually occur after treatment is over. And many of these occur years after treatment is over. So two years or three years is not unheard of for a relapse to occur. And, and the question is, where is this coming from? Where has the cell been all this time uh, hiding in the body? How did that happen and why is it recurring now? And the answer is I don't think any of us truly know why late relapses occur. I think one hypothesis is that there may be some degree of immune surveillance in the body that after the completion of treatment, when we're down to extremely low levels of disease, if, if the leukemia cell hasn't been fully eradicated, the body's own immune system may help take care to mop it all up. And a late relapse could occur if somehow a leukemia cell mutates, figures out a way to evade immune surveillance. And so it's a failure of immune surveillance. And there's been a long-held belief that the immune system is important in helping to ultimately cure disease and fully eradicate it from the body. I think, what does it tell us? I, you know, in many ways, uh, the whole technology around CAR T cells is really trying to amp up immune surveillance. It's taking this hypothesis that the T cells in the body have the ability to kill and eradicate leukemia cells and saying, well, let's just, let's just make that work better. Let's just take the body's own T 
cells and direct them all towards the leukemia cell and take advantage of what the immune system is able to do. What we think in some children it might do at some low level, let's just do it at a much larger level. So I think, you know, that's really the hypothesis around a CAR T cell is that immune surveillance does have a role and that if we can only get more T cells to attack the leukemia cells, the leukemia will not be able to evade the attack of the immune system and really can be eradicated from the body. Wonderful hypothesis and, and obviously, I guess, some uh, good clinical data behind it now. How about checkpoint inhibitors, which, and again, in medical oncology is probably the, the most major breakthrough we've had. How about in your field? Yeah, you know, uh, checkpoint inhibitors are obviously very exciting as well. I think for pediatric oncology, they're in investigation and there's promising results within lymphomas as, as there are Hodgkin's lymphoma as there are in adults. And people have really been trying to look at them in solid tumors. There's not really a whole lot of work that, or at least a whole lot of progress that has been made in the use of checkpoint inhibitors in the leukemias. And, you know, I think people are beginning to have interest in uh, checkpoint inhibitors and combining them with other immunotherapeutic approaches that we have. So for instance, both blinitumumab, which is bringing T cells next to B lymphoblasts and just saying, go ahead and kill, and also CAR T cells, which relies on T cells that are now directed towards B lymphoblasts, that perhaps one could enhance the response of those agents by adding checkpoint inhibitors to them. But those are trials that have yet to happen, but there's certainly discussion about there might be ways to add them in to improve the outcome that we see with these immunotherapies. I to ask you, uh, you and I talked a little bit about MRD. To me, it was very exciting, sort of the progress in detecting MRD. Can you share that a little bit in terms of where we've been and where we're at now in looking at minimal residual disease? Sure. You know, we've talked a lot about the great advances in the last five years. I think if I had to discuss what was the the greatest advance in the last 10 to 15 years in this field, it's really the recognition of minimal residual disease as one of the most important, if not the most important prognostic factor we have in childhood ALL. So MRD really refers to levels of residual disease that are measured early in treatment. Typically, that's done at the end of the first month of treatment and often at a second time point, about 10 to 20 12 weeks into treatment, and we're really looking to measure sub-microscopic levels of disease. And the first set of studies from the late 90s and early 2000s really showed that patients who are in complete remission, you can really distinguish their prognosis by measuring the level of MRD left behind at those two time points so that patients with higher levels of MRD really had a, a much higher, significantly higher risk of relapse than those with lower levels of MRD. The technologies that we first had available to us to measure MRD were really flow cytometry, um, which measures cell surface markers and looks for leukemia-specific cell surface marker signatures. And really, those are sensitive down to a level of about 0.01% or 1 in 10,000 cells. There was also a PCR-based technology that was used by many groups, especially in Europe, which looked for clonal rearrangements of immunoglobulin chain genes or T-cell receptor genes. And that, too, went down to about the same level of sensitivity 
sensitivity, uh, maybe a little bit better. Uh, also had a, a, a higher uh, indeterminate rate because uh, it was a very difficult technology to use. Um, what's been the innovation over the last several years is uh, 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 the ability to measure MRD using next generation sequencing technology. Um, so it's become more available uh, that, that one can use NGS uh, technology. Uh, again, targeting the immunoglobulin chain gene rearrangements or T-cell receptor gene rearrangement, but in a way that one is is able to identify more rearrangements than it could with the PCR technology, and second, is extremely sensitive. So, so with that testing, one can measure MRD levels down to one in a million cells, which is, you know, logs more sensitive than we were able to do with flow cytometry or even PCR. You know, the question is whether we need that level of sensitivity. There's been some very interesting data that was published for children with ALL who are going to bone marrow transplant. What's been known is that MRD prior to a bone marrow transplant is a strong predictor of relapse post-transplant. So the lower your MRD prior to transplant, the better you are, the less the chance of relapse. What they did in this study, which was very interesting, is measure both flow cytometry MRD as well as the NGS MRD. And they could show that patients whose MRD was negative or non-detectable by flow, but still could be measured by the NGS technique, so had very low but detectable levels of MRD by NGS had a significantly higher relapse risk than those whose MRD was negative by the NGS. So it did seem to matter in that group of patients that even down to a very, very low level of measurements, that the NGS was helping to pick up patients who were at higher risk of relapse. And I think you know, what, where we are now is trying to look at in upfront patients who aren't going to transplant, whether that level of sensitivity is going to help us really pick up those patients who are at higher risk or even more pick up the patients who look like they're going to do extremely well because they have such a phenomenal MRD response that it's less than one in a million at the end of the first month of treatment. Wow. I know you're working on a very big clinical trial and clinical trials have made such a difference in the prognosis for children with cancer and, uh, and for adults for that matter too. Can you tell us a little bit about your study because I, I, I think I, it's important to spread the word. Sure, thanks. And I just have to say, you know, all the advances in childhood ALL over the last many decades have all come as a result of of clinical trials and successive clinical trials. And it's really, you know, great to be part of a field in which uh, clinical trials are really at the centerpiece of what we do and collaborative trials, uh, all of us working together to try to make things better, really has made such a huge difference in this field. I run a trial as part of a, a group called the, the DFCI ALL Consortium that consists of several centers in the U.S. and Canada. And the objective of our current trial is really trying to refine risk stratification. It's really uh, trying to bring a lot of the things that we already talked about in terms of new prognostic factors and potential novel treatments right to the patient right now. So the way we treat childhood ALL and have for many decades is in a risk stratified manner. When, when patients 
come in and are diagnosed, we are able to put them into risk groups based on presenting features. So we know about various uh, prognostic factors such as age and white count and phenotype, and that helps us to stratify the intensity of therapy. We also use MRD to try and uh, to also uh, refine that risk group status. So we look at the patient's response after that first month or at the second time point after 10 or 12 weeks of treatment, and again, can refine so that patients who have suboptimal MRD responses will get stronger treatment to try and treat away their risk. So we've done that for years. What we're trying to do in our new trial is refine that even more using some of the genomics that I described at the beginning to really help better define what biologic subset a patient belongs to and better define what their risk of relapse is. And in that way, hopefully identify patients who are at higher risk of relapse who we might have missed in the past uh, and assign them to stronger treatment. And just as importantly, to identify some patients who in the past we might have thought of as being higher risk and needing stronger therapy, but because of their biology and because of their response as measured by MRD, we can say, you know what, it looks like you have a very good prognosis and a very low risk of relapse. And maybe we can try to de-intensify a bit, remove some of the more morbid components of treatment and avoid some of the on-treatment toxicities and some of the late effects that are of such concern for our pediatric patients. So really, the goal of this trial is is just to fine-tune things using what we've learned over the last five years in terms of genomics and also incorporating this new MRD technology to really find those patients who uh, have favorable biology and are excellent responders and also find those patients who have previously unidentified high-risk biologic features and give them different treatment. Part of that different treatment that we're given would include tyrosine kinase inhibitors for patients with pH-like disease. Our biologic studies show that, that that may be appropriate for that group of patients. Obviously, a child being diagnosed with leukemia or really any cancer is life-changing for them and for their family as well, and such an incredibly difficult time. What are some of the support services that are helpful to, uh, to patients and families going through this experience? You know, that it is true. This is, you know, absolutely devastating to families when they hear that their child has cancer. And it is so difficult. I mean, one of the joys of my job, if one can call this joyous, is that there is so much hope. And I can come into the room with so much hope for these families that really, with our current available treatments, the vast majority of children are cured and that we're able to guide them through a very difficult time knowing that for really the vast majority of them, there's a happy ending once we complete the treatment. There are a number of support services that many large centers offer in terms of social work and activities, and there's a number of uh, of wonderful organizations out there to help families and help families deal with this and to provide support and information to them. And certainly the Leukemia Lymphoma Society provides just that and is one of the leaders in providing the, the kind of support and information that families really need as they embark on this process. And I, I totally agree. Uh, on the adult side, and, and I have to say, honestly, from personal experiences as well, LLS has been terrific. The progress in treating childhood leukemia has really been tremendous and has been very, very exciting. What else is happening that you're excited about as a pediatric oncologist that are really changing the outlook for children with cancer? Yeah, you know, in many of our diseases, there's been such great advances over the last several years. Much of the advances that I 
described in terms of understanding of genomics of childhood leukemia applies to so many of the childhood cancers. So really that technology has really just transformed our understanding of so many of our diseases. I think within brain tumors, which is certainly a group of patients who, who are in need of novel treatments, I think our understanding of the biology of various brain tumors has substantially increased so that now I think within diagnoses, we there are prognostically recognized subsets that weren't recognized before. And even more importantly, they, they've identified targets for treatment, potential novel therapeutics that I think really can make a huge difference. That's also been true in so many of the solid tumors. And like in adult cancers, there are now large trials to molecularly screen pediatric patients with solid tumors to look for possible targeted therapies that might be appropriate for them that they could be treated with that I think has just such great potential to to improve outcome, especially for those with relapse disease. I think there's been certain diseases where the advances are just, you know, just pretty incredible. Neuroblastoma, you know, what we've learned not only about intensified therapy and the important role of transplant in that disease, but also just novel treatments. So the use of immunotherapy in that disease, you know, has become standard of care through a randomized clinical trial that adding an anti-GD2 antibody really improves outcome, that adding a differentiating agent, retinoic acid, improves outcome, and that now testing novel treatment, MIBG therapy in that disease, which has also been shown to be active, I can tell you that within my career, the number of therapies that we are able to offer a child who comes in with advanced staged high-risk neuroblastoma is, is just so much larger than it was in the past. And I think that's made a really big difference in that group of patients. I, I could go on and on. The cure rates in Hodgkin's disease is so good, and there's just more and more research about how we can do less so that we can avoid some of really the late effects associated with that disease, especially in terms of omitting radiation and incorporating new agents, new exciting agents in Hodgkin's to try and reduce late effects is also, I think, something that's very important. I think in general within pediatric oncology, this focus on improving the quality of the cure. We are fortunate that so many of our patients are cured of their disease, and I think there is a growing and important field of research regarding understanding the late effects of treatment. I mean, giving these toxic therapies to a small child has impact. So understanding what those are, and then really looking at ways to try and mitigate them when we can. I think that's a really exciting advance in our field that transcends all of the cancers that we take care of. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. This is Dr. Ken Miller, and I want to thank all of you for listening to this episode of the LS podcast series for professionals. I especially also want to thank Dr. Lewis Silverman for joining us. Lewis, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. No, thank you very much. It was really, it was great. Thanks. For information on LLS's Pediatric Continuing Education webinar and for a listing of all of our CME activities, please visit www.lls.org CE. And for any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other resources. 
Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.